Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, the checkered history of the TV makeover show Viv Anderson, the phenomenal black footballer who changed England forever. And the slow-running revolution, how to really enjoy the race. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, in their 2000s heyday, Makeover shows sneered at guests, gave them brutal surgery, and put their attractiveness to a public vote. Now they are back, but this time, asks Daisy Jones, is it finally all about body positivity? Read by Colleen Prendergast. What do you picture when you think of classic makeover shows? Gok Wan hurling a long-tasseled scarf around anyone in his vicinity? Trini and Susanna on What Not to Wear, 2001-2013, telling some poor, unsuspecting woman that she has tits down by her knees? Or someone's mum being trotted out on a British high street for ten years younger, 2004, while members of the public guess her, ostensibly much younger, age? After which she has her face cut up and sewn back together, or sometimes her fat sucked out, before being swaddled in a tasteful blazer and kitten heels? Makeover shows at their peak in the 2000s were famously unhinged, arguably even more so across the Atlantic. The US had Extreme Makeover 2004, whereby ordinary people underwent invasive surgery, strict exercise regimens and a wardrobe overhaul. On The Swan, 2004, Fox's controversial reality show, two ugly ducklings were completely physically transformed, including the use of surgery, before battling it out for the title of The Swan. Some, too, might remember Bridal Plasty, 2010, in which 12 women fought to win their perfect wedding as well as an entirely new face or body, to be revealed down the aisle. I'm not making this up. These sorts of shows eventually went out of fashion. In recent years, however, we've seen the format make a tentative return, this time with empowering new branding. 
Gone are the rampant body-shaming and catty asides about a mum who's let herself go. Instead, shows such as Netflix's Skin Decision, Before and After, 2020, and Queer Eye's Lovely 2018 reboot, and the BBC's You Are What You Wear, 2020, have generally signified a kinder approach to makeovers. This week, we also have Channel 4's Unique Boutique, described as a groundbreaking series offering fabulous new looks for a wide range of people not served by mainstream fashion. One episode in, and it's clear that much has shifted since the humiliations of earlier eras. One woman, Lisa, whose body has changed after cervical cancer treatment, gets her favourite clothes reworked to fit her shape. Emma Jane, whose arthritis means she uses a wheelchair, is presented with new outfits designed with the chair and her tastes in mind. With its jazzy soundtrack and peppy colour palette, this is uplifting, fuzzy-hearted daytime television, in which nobody is made to feel like they have fundamentally failed as a human. I've got sparkle, says Lisa towards the end, her voice cracking. It feels good. Unique Boutique leads with empathy. But, with makeover shows in the past, this hasn't always been the case. Lariah Lee remembers being cast on BBC Three's Snog Marry Avoid in 2008, in which participants were given a make-under to achieve a more natural look, and being dressed in minimal, plain clothes that she wouldn't usually wear. Lee absolutely loves makeup. Online, she is now famous for painting her face blue, and experimenting with surreal, alien-like looks, so the process was out of her comfort zone. The worst part of it was that I specifically told them I don't show my arms or legs, she says. They dressed me in a room with my eyes closed, and I felt the dress. I said, no, absolutely not, I can't show my arms or legs. But they convinced me they weren't showing, and I didn't realise they were until the reveal. I'm not sure how they convinced me I was covered when I could feel I wasn't. Melissa Howe, aged 33, also appeared on Snog Marry Avoid in 2009 with her twin sister, Carla Howe. The two are presented as ditzy and looks-obsessed. I could tell that with the editing, they were trying to make people look stupid, remembers Howe. In one scene, my dress wasn't pulled down properly, and they were like, leave it like that. It was them trying to make people look silly. I didn't like my outfit either. They dressed me in grandma-style clothes and pinned my hair into a sleek ponytail. It wasn't my choice at all. It wasn't uncommon for participants to be shoehorned into a show without being privy to the full picture. When Cheyenne Stoll, then aged 21 from New Jersey, agreed to be on bridal plasty, she says she wasn't informed about the plastic surgery element when she signed up to the show. Its working title, Stoll tells me, was originally House of Brides. By the time she found out that contestants might go under the knife, she just ran with it. I was like, OK, whatever, I'll just see what happens as it goes, and then, of course, I was the first person to win and get plastic surgery, which was super nerve-wracking. Stoll was filmed immediately after a nose job. She is dazed, her face plastered in bandages. It was a little weird, because you don't feel well, and then you have cameras in your face, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, people are going to see me in such an unpleasant light, she says. 
Still, Stoll doesn't view the experience as negative. She's an easygoing person and had no qualms about having plastic surgery. It wouldn't be for everybody. If you're not a very open person, it wouldn't be a good scene. Sheila Conlon, a casting director and producer on numerous US makeover shows throughout the years, including The Swan and Skin Decision, remembers how, in the 2000s, the onus was often on achieving the big physical reveal. These days, an inner transformation is pushed front and centre. It's what audiences care about most. The Swan did incorporate inner transformation, Conlon says. However, back then, with the style of those shows, we only showed the physical. It's a sentiment echoed by Nikki Hambleton-Jones, who presented 10 years younger from 2004 until 2008. She tells me that participants often underwent a huge amount of inner growth and were amazed by the end result. But now that aspect is prioritised. There's definitely more of a holistic thread to makeover shows these days. They are much more about wellness and the emotional side of it, rather than come in, do this, do this, do this, and boom, you look amazing and off you go. Shows in the 2000s that involved plastic surgery often appeared violent. Women lay on their backs in yellow-lit rooms as surgeons sliced their eyelids or carved into their stomachs. But, Conlon points out, technology has changed completely in the years since. So, even on recent shows that include cosmetic procedures, such as Skin Decision, everything appears a lot more subtle, less dramatic. We have lasers, liposuction has a quicker turnaround, you can have cellulite dissolved. What happened was, there became more options that involved non-cutting, says Conlon. Our attitudes towards cosmetic procedures have also shifted massively. Getting a round of Botox or filler might be almost as normal as a manicure now, but it wasn't always like that. People were horrified that we were doing Botox, never mind plastic surgery, because nobody did that stuff at all. It created quite a stir, remembers Hamilton Jones. Ironically, now it's quite normalised. It used to be fascinating to watch and be almost appalled by what these women were doing, says Stoll. But now people are going to be like, I had that done last week. What's the big deal? We've come a long way. Since women were regularly lambasted on TV for being frumpy and in dire need of physical transformation. The rise of body positivity and the mainstream rise of feminism has meant that, watching back, these shows are often uncomfortable. Sure, they were entertaining, even funny, in their absurdity, and plenty of cast members were pleased with the results, but it's not necessarily an era anybody wants to repeat. Still, the slate has yet to be wiped clean. Many newer makeover shows, Unique Boutique in particular, are in some ways quietly defined by what they are not, they are poor-faced as opposed to caustic, compassionate instead of shaming, more focused on inner confidence than conventional beauty standards. Are they as shocking, and therefore as engaging, as makeover shows at their peak? Maybe not. Is that a good thing? Most definitely. That was Time for an Entirely New Face or Body 
The Checkered History of the TV Makeover Show by Daisy Jones. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next. In 1978, Viv Anderson made history and faced adversity as the first black footballer to play for England. It was just one triumph in a career packed full of them. Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff meets a footballing legend. Read by Chuku Modu. The last time Viv Anderson played in a football match, he accidentally broke a man's nose. I said, that's me finished, he says. I left very quickly after that. After this amateur match five years ago, in which he participated as a favour to a friend, he decided he wouldn't step onto the field again. In some ways, it was a fitting end to the playing days of one of England's best fullbacks, A man who thinks that today's football is lacking the rough and tumble of yesteryear. In other ways, it is inconsistent with a player who cites team bonding as the thing he misses most about professional football. Basking in the sun on a hot summer's day, 66-year-old Anderson is the picture of serenity. He greets me with a firm handshake. He has a habit of ending sentences abruptly, pursing his lips as if swallowing the depth of his feeling. Although, when he is animated, he bangs both hands on the table to make his point. My memory for detail is not the best in the business, he wrote in his 2010 autobiography, First Among Unequals. But today, the memories he shares are profound. The easiest part is breaking through, he says at one point. The hardest part is staying. In 1978, Anderson made history as the first black footballer to play for the England men's senior team. Of the other black players who followed in his wake in the late 70s and early 80s, with the exception of John Barnes, who was by far the longest serving. In a new documentary, Local Heroes, there is footage of him being interviewed about his selection. He is a lanky 22-year-old with an afro and a soft voice. In typically mellow fashion, he says that being picked is tremendous. This was an era when it was still rare to see black players on the field in Britain. Anderson's only real contemporaries, he says, were Clyde Best, Bob Hazel, Laurie Cunningham and Cyril Regis. Even so, a few days before his first match, the Observer ran with the headline, Black is Bountiful, and concluded, The black revolution in English football isn't coming, it is here. These were prescient words. The current England men's squad has nine black or mixed black players, and more than a hundred black men have played for England since Anderson first took to the pitch, though black women remain woefully underrepresented. On the day of his first England match, Anderson received personal telegrams from Elton John and the Queen. They'll be somewhere in a bag in the garage, he chuckles. He doesn't remember exactly what they said, but he appreciated the notes because he was nervous. It was a low-stakes friendly against Czechoslovakia, but conditions were less than ideal. It was an icy day at Wembley in late November. It wouldn't be played today, says Anderson, shaking his head. Half of the pitch was frozen solid, while the other half was still soft, meaning the teams had to change in and out of studs at half-time. I was thinking, we've got to go back to basics. We've got to hit the first header, first tackle. The things you've been doing that got you here in the first place. It was all about making sure I didn't make a fool of myself, he says. He got in an early tackle, which calmed his nerves, and he enjoyed the second half of the match far more than the first. After putting in a strong performance for the 1-0 win, The Guardian said at the time that it would assure him an international career of some length, 
His dad, Audley, who was in the crowd of 92,000, took him home. He was a very quiet man, says Anderson, but I know he was very proud. I could tell from his expression. Anderson's parents had come to the UK from Kingston, Jamaica, in the 1950s, as part of the Windrush generation. Like many in that era, they were enticed by the promise of a new life abroad and willing to make sacrifices for it. His father moved over first. His mum, Myrtle, followed shortly afterwards. He began working in security. She had been a teacher in Jamaica, but was told her qualifications were not valid in England. Instead, she became a dinner lady, then an NHS nurse. The couple settled near to family in the centre of Nottingham, later moving to the Clifton Council estate. Anderson was born in 1956. His younger brother, Donald, came two years later. He describes a generally happy childhood, with parents who were calm in nature, though his dad was away a great deal working. Anderson played a lot of football in the streets and was well-liked at school, thanks to his athletic prowess. Although not particularly academic, leaving with, he thinks, just three CSEs, Certificates of Secondary Education. Although there was a race riot in Nottingham in 1958, he has no memory of his family being affected by it, nor did he experience much in the way of racism as a child. The biggest upset to the equilibrium of his youth came from his brother Donald's polio diagnosis when Anderson was five. We took our turns looking after him because mum was working, says Anderson. My brother went to different schools because he wasn't able-bodied. It was a full-on thing for the family. In his autobiography, he calls the virus a scourge and a cruel suffering on his brother and parents. Donald, who still lives in Nottingham, later became a passionate football supporter, often travelling to see Anderson play. He was just a mad Manchester United fan, so when I finally went to Manchester United, he got the season tickets and all sorts of things, says Anderson. Anderson was discovered as a schoolboy playing on the white sands of Bridlington Beach. The family, who didn't have a lot of money, would spend part of their summer holidays at the seaside, bringing deck chairs and sandwiches with them for a proper day out. Anderson, aged about 14, was playing alone with a ball when a scout approached him and asked if he would like to do a trial for Sheffield United. I must have had some sort of talent that people saw from an early age, says Anderson. A little black skinny kid from Nottingham. From those trials, he was noticed by Manchester United and spent a glorious year travelling back and forth from Nottingham to Old Trafford with the hopes of being selected to join the team as an apprentice. His eventual rejection was the first heartbreak of his life. I was very disappointed, he says. I cried a little bit in my room, probably. But looking back, Anderson says he can see that the young men he was playing with were the best in the country. You've got to be as good as them or even better. Clearly I wasn't. He started to understand that being a black man in England meant working harder than everyone else. He pulled up his socks, decided to be practical and stoic like his parents, and looked for a job, settling on becoming a silk screen printer and leaving his football dreams behind. Three weeks later, Anderson was given an apprenticeship at Nottingham Forest and made his debut in the youth team at 17. He worked hard, deciding early on that he wanted to make the A-team. Brian Clough, who joined Forrest as a manager in 1975, saw his talent and made him a regular. With the brash and brilliant Clough at the helm, Forrest, who had been languishing in the second division for much of the 1970s, conquered the top-flight first division league in 1978, then won the European Cup, the precursor to today's Champions League, two years on the trot, 
The winning goal in the 1979 final was scored by Trevor Francis, who passed away on Monday, one of the greatest underdog stories of modern English football. When Anderson made his debut for England, Clough was cautiously proud, telling the papers that Anderson deserved the recognition, but also not to let the selection go to his head. The year before, in 1977, Clough had sponsored the launch of the Anti-Nazi League, a campaign that opposed the growing threat of the National Front. During his tenure at Forest, Clough started or boosted the careers of a fair number of black players, though in more recent years he has been criticised for his homophobic treatment of Justin Fashionu. It was Clough who took 19-year-old Anderson aside after he had been pelted with bananas and other fruit during a warm-up against Carlisle in the mid-1970s. Racism and football from fans in the 70s and 80s was rife. And this wasn't the first time he had been verbally or physically attacked, but it was the most memorable. When he complained, Clough told him to go back out there and get me two pears and a banana, and moreover, to focus on his game. He said, you let people like that dictate to you. You're not going to make it as a footballer. We're going to pick somebody else. So at that point, I'm going, well... The only thing I want to do is to be a footballer. I'm not going to let these people or anybody derail that, Anderson says. I made a conscious effort to just dismiss it all and get on with it. There wasn't an alternative. You couldn't walk off because it wasn't done. Unlike with contemporary black footballers, Anderson is struck by how few people he was able to tell who might care. He remembers sharing a room with Laurie Cunningham when they were both called up for England. You think it would be the first thing we talk about? What was it like for you? He'd laughs. But no, he'd say, have you seen this car I'm buying? You never talked about it, you just got on with it. It wasn't, he adds, all doom and gloom for the black players at the time. It wasn't nice, but it was in one ear and out the other. They were too busy, mostly, having a good time and living out their dreams. As a former ambassador for Kick It Out, the anti-discrimination initiative, he's been pleased to see the changes over the years. It's not like now with the Marcus Rashfords and the Sterlings and all the other players, they've got a voice. Governments change policies on the strength of what they got to say, he says. I didn't do an interview about being racially abused. And suddenly, since I've finished, people have asked, what was it like in your time? After he left Forest in 1984, Anderson went on to have generally illustrious spells at Arsenal, Manchester United, where he was Alex Ferguson's first signing, Sheffield Wednesday, and finally Middlesbrough as a player coach. It was there he played the last matches of his career, pushing 40 and sensing his body was ready to give up. Retirement from football for Anderson meant joining a concierge service and then founding a company that helps to look after former professional sports people, play on pro. He feels lucky, he says, because the stats for ex-footballers around suicide, bankruptcy, divorce and even imprisonment are scary. We try and give them a chance to fill the void from when they were playing, he says. We've got to give them a reason to get up in the morning. In recent years, he's also had the space to focus more on his family. He now lives a quiet life in a leafy part of Manchester with his long-term partner Nicole and his two youngest children, daughter Ruby, 12, and son Freddie, 16. His eldest son, Charlie, is 31. I'm a taxi driver. I'm ferrying them all over the place, he jokes. I've got a lot more time than when I was involved in playing because you've got to make sure you get all the rest for the games on the Saturday so your partner or your wife ends up doing all that stuff. 
He wants to pass this discipline onto his kids, but he also expects them to keep up their studies in a way he didn't. Ruby, he says, is not interested in football. Anderson is not a particular fan of the women's game, saying that he wouldn't watch 90 minutes, but I watch bits. Charlie was once a semi-professional footballer and now works as a football agent. In 2022, Charlie signed his brother Freddie, who had been part of Manchester City's academy since he was six and recently joined Stoke City. He's not made it yet, says Anderson or Freddie. Lots of things can happen in that short space of time. Injuries can appear. The manager doesn't like him. Form. Of all the people who play football in the UK, there's only 4% who ever make it. Are the rewards good? Yes. But you know, that's why the GCSEs are more important. There's got to be something to fall back on. While Anderson is pragmatic about Freddie's chances, he speaks warmly about the fact that both his sons have taken on elements of his playing style and outlook. They run very similar to me. They've both got my physique. You can see some similarities, he says. It's this desire to be a footballer. His legacy, then, is carried on through his children. But I ask, is it important for him to be recognised as the first black player for England? There have been debates about which men should carry that crown. Jack Leslie was the first black player to receive an England call-up in 1925. John Charles played for England under-18s in 1963. Benjamin Odigi played for the England schoolboy squad in 1971. Laurie Cunningham played under-21s in 1977. And Paul Reaney, who is of mixed race, is regarded as the first BAME England men's senior team player, having made his debut in 1968. It's not just about being the first black player. But it's all the rest of it. It goes together, Anderson says, calling the debates a distraction. I don't want them to talk about, oh, Viv Anderson was the first black footballer who played for England. I just want them to say, Viv Anderson was a really good footballer. That was Viv Anderson, the phenomenal black footballer who changed England forever, by Charlie Brinkhurst Cuff. Read by Chukumodu. If you enjoyed this article, you'll love Max and Barry's extraordinary interview with former footballer and anti-racism campaigner Troy Townsend on The Guardian's Football Weekly. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack and Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, forget personal bests, stopwatches and numbers on the scales. These days, points out Sampira, more and more people are taking up running to enjoy time in nature, chatting with friends and stress reduction. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Running is a sport governed by the clock. The four-minute mile, the two-hour marathon, the ten-second, 100 metres. Recreational runners, a country mile away from breaking these barriers, still chase times, pour over splits, minutes a mile or kilometre, and obsess over shaving minutes or seconds from their personal bests. But change is afoot. Away from the business end of the sport, where records continue to tumble, Running's vital statistics are getting slower. Between 1986 and 2018, the average finish time for a 10-kilometre race slipped by about 12 minutes, and for a marathon, by 39 minutes. The biggest factor in the slowdown is that running has become a broader church. A glance at any start line confirms that there are runners of all ages, Abilities, shapes and sizes a far cry from when I started out more than 30 years ago when race participants were uniformly skinny, swift, club-vested and mostly male. Martinus Evans, aged 36, is the proud owner of eight marathon medals. His running journey began 11 years ago when his doctor told him, Mr Evans, you're fat. You have two options, lose weight or die. At the time, he weighed 21 stone, 7 pounds, 136 kilograms. Evans announced he would run a marathon, much to the doctor's derision. But he went on to do exactly that, and has since completed more than 100 other races. Running has nothing to do with a number on a scale or a time on a stopwatch, he says. Evans set up, and is now in charge of, the Slow AF Run Club a virtual club with more than 10,000 members, and his book of the same name came out last month. My message is that running is for anyone and that you can do it in the body you have right now, he says. Evans's experiences in past events, being called fat and slow by the driver of the sweeper vehicle that brings up the rear, getting lost because route signage had been taken down, and crossing finish lines to find no medals or water left might suggest that not everyone agrees. However, he believes the outlook for non-traditional runners is improving. One race director said that after he read my story, he started to offer finisher t-shirts up to size 3XL, he says. In 2020, after consultation with slower runners who had reported negative experiences at the previous year's event, the London Marathon launched its Back of the Pack initiative. 
The finish line on the Mall now remains open until 7.30pm, with 50 tailwalkers starting at the back of the final wave on all three starts and moving at eight-hour marathon pace, 18 minutes and 18 seconds a mile. A tailwalker will drop back to support any runner struggling to maintain that pace, moving onto the pavement with them and accompanying them to the finish line. Drink stations and timing mats remain in place until all tailwalkers have passed, says Leanne Hogan, the event's communications manager. Even after the official finish line closes, an alternative one in St James's Park is open for those coming in later than 7.30pm. All participants who finish on marathon day and have not left the course at any point will get a medal, says Hogan. Lisa Jackson, a member of the 100 Marathon Club, and author of Your Pace or Mine, welcomes the move. I think racers should extend their cut-offs if they can. Why exclude anyone? Jackson describes herself as born genetically slow and has finished last in 20 of her 110 marathons. My attitude to racing is that it is about the time you have, not the time you do, she says. I'm a driven person, but not time-focused at all. I don't want to be looking at my watch all the time. What's important to me is the connections I make with others. I love talking to people, and the people at the back of the pack talk more. Jackson's disregard for speed is music to the ears of Bethan Taylor-Swain, who is researching problems around inclusivity in running for her PhD. We need to move away from pace as the sole marker of success and find other ways of interpreting or rating running experiences, she says. I've no problem with people chasing times, but let's also talk about what else we value about running. Parkrun, the global series of free weekly five-kilometre timed events, has played an instrumental role in filling the pews of running's broader church, if not prizing the doors open in the first place. Park run is not a race but a run, although you will still see fingers poised over watches at the start line and has no time limit for its five-kilometre distance. As each event has a volunteer tailwalker bringing up the rear, it is impossible to come last. We're changing the traditional narrative around what running should be, making it more spacious and inclusive, says Chrissy Wellington, a four-time Ironman world champion and Parkrun's head of health and well-being. The average finish time in 2005 was 22 minutes 17 seconds, whereas in 2023 it is 32 minutes 34 seconds. We're proud that our finish times are getting longer, says Wellington. We're getting better at giving more people the opportunity and space to walk or run at whatever pace they feel comfortable. Ultimately, it's about movement. There are incredible health benefits from running at any pace and from walking. Wellington makes an important point when I use the term slow running. There are many reasons why people might choose or need to run slowly, she says. Speed is relative. One person's leisurely pace is another's maximum effort. Finish time can be just as important to a slower runner as to a fast one. Taylor Swain no longer tells people her race finish times as part of her attempt to broaden the conversation about running. It really gets some people's backs up, she says. I've been accused of not being a real runner. 
Instead, her suggested questions to ask runners at the finish line include How did you feel? What was your highlight? And how will you celebrate? I admit that I have always kept a close eye on my time. When my performances started to decline with age, I found my enjoyment of racing following suit. That has not been the case for former British elite marathoner Tina Muir, personal best 2 hours 36 minutes, who retired from professional running in 2017, aged 28. I am intrigued to know how she continues to derive satisfaction from crossing a finish line, despite her best times being behind her. It took a while not to care what the result next to my name said and what people would think, she says. My first race as a non-professional athlete was miserable, as I hadn't let go of the habit of pushing myself to the brink. But gradually, I realised I really enjoyed running when I wasn't obsessing over the result. I just ran a 10 kilometre in one hour, four minutes, my slowest ever by far, and it was so much fun. I have found a different way to recalibrate my relationship with running as I have got slower. I have stopped racing entirely, swapping performance targets for goals such as stress reduction, time in nature, mental and physical health. I am not alone. Sarah Kern, a runner for 25 years, also gave up racing six years ago. Running can be so comparative, she says. It's all about performance goals. Every time I signed up for a race, I'd either lose all motivation to train or get injured. Now I run because I want to be out there. I love the headspace, being in nature. It's quite liberating not to care any more about my pace. I'll run a bit, walk a bit, stop and take pictures of the bunnies. We slow runners even have a new vocabulary that is far more positive than words such as plod and shuffle, jeffing, which describes a walk-run combo named after Jeff Galloway, the US Olympian who was a fan of it as a coaching technique, picnic pace, used by ultra-runners, and, my favourite, Martinus Evans's sexy pace. I suspect there will be naysayers reading this who will grumble that 18, 16 or even 12 minutes a mile isn't proper running. Perhaps they will suggest that people should train more or lose weight before they tow a start line. But, as the slow running movement gathers pace, they will be the ones left behind. That was The Slow Running Revolution. How to move at a sexy pace and really enjoy the race by Sam Pyra, read by Colleen Prendergast. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and Chiku Modu and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Max Anderson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.